Tonight on the DTD podcast, if you ever rented a video as a kid, you're going to definitely know what we're talking about tonight. We have Taylor Morden in the studio to talk about his fantastic documentary, The Last Blockbuster. So let's get right into it. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you were here? How about no, you crazy Dutch bastard? What we've got here is failure to communicate. 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That's cute. I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious? I am serious. And don't call me sure. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. Both friends and foes are allowed in here. And tonight, we talked to Taylor Morden about the last blockbuster, and I couldn't be more excited. This came across my radar only about probably a month ago. I got onto it as soon as I could. I watched it, and I'm amazed just at the level of people that he brought into the movie, uh, the storyline of the movie, because you think, ah, it can't be that exciting, but I'm telling you, there's a lot that goes into this. So without further ado, welcome, Taylor. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into this real quick. What made this, I've seen a couple of, I've, I've looked around at a couple of your other things, uh, and most recently, I looked at um, a movie that you did called Project 88 uh, uh, that you were associated <laughs> with, uh, where sure. it was like a, a fan-made, shot-for-shot remake of Back to the Future. So in everything that I see in your documentaries about music or bands or, or blockbuster, you have a lot of nostalgia running through you. Uh, is there a yes, reason <laughs> why you're so addicted to this era instead of doing documentaries about the present time that we're in other than it's a super depressing time. <laughs> right. I mean, right now sucks. Who wants to talk about that when you can Absolutely. talk about the eighties and nineties? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, I was one of those kids in the eighties and in the nineties. And I, I, I just, I grew up watching a lot of TV, a lot of movies, getting into music in the nineties. And that really stuck with me. You know, I got pretty bad case of arrested development and I kind of, just my brain never stopped thinking about that stuff. And I also, you know, nostalgia wise, that was the last time we had before the internet took everything over, right? So it was the last real era that was different than it is now, as far as, you know, everybody's lifestyle and the way we interact with things like music right. and movies and pop culture. And so to me, it's like, if you don't go back to the 90s or the 80s or before that, you know, you're just talking about stuff that still exists now. It's kind of the way the world is. So that's that's the way my brain works. I'm, I'm still latched into the 90s pretty hard. Now, were you uh, all the way through the 80s? Because I was all the way through the 80s, all the way through the 90s. Or were you more slanted towards the 90s? Or were you about my age, so you made it all the way through the 80s too? Well, I was born in 81. Okay. So um, I'll be 40 this year, and... I lived most, you know, I missed right. 1980, and I don't really remember but, 81, 2, or 3, but 
after that, yeah. Well, that's when it really started kicking off was about 84 was when it really got going. So why Blockbuster? I mean, there was a ton of stuff that you could do movies about, about nostalgia back then. We talked about Back to the Future and stuff like that. What stood out to this story uh, to you so much? Well, this story really kind of found me. I, I had been living on the East Coast, and um, my wife and I decided to move back to Oregon, where I'd spent a lot of my childhood and where she grew up. And we moved back to a town called Bend, Oregon, which is not a big town. It's about 90,000 people here. And when we did that, this was 2015, 2016, around then. Um, and, you know, we came from a big city to a small town, and everything was kind of a culture shock. But the biggest difference I noticed was that there was still a blockbuster video here. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, and I saw the sign. And actually, there was one right by my house here that was going out of business the week we moved here. So in 2015. And... Um, I, we didn't have any of our stuff yet. It was being shipped over in like a pods situation. Right. Um, so we were just here. We had like a car full of clothes and sleeping bags and our dog, and that's it. And then I saw this Blockbuster going out of business. So the first thing I did before we had any furniture, I went and bought a whole stack of DVDs. You know, they're going out of business sale. Yeah. <laughs> DVDs, video games, stuff like that. Um, and then that was it. I thought they were just gone. And I would drive around Bend and see this sign, you know, one of those big – the iconic blockbuster signs up on right. the big pole. Um, but knowing that that one had gone out of business and knowing full well that they were all out of business, you know, I'm, I'm no dummy. I know there's no blockbuster video in 2017, right. 2016. Uh, but one day I stopped in just out of curiosity because I saw the sign. This was a separate location. I thought, well, they can't be open, but it'll be fun to go check out the Dropbox or see the skeleton of the store. They certainly haven't rented it out. Uh, but what I found was a fully functional, you know, as if nothing had ever changed, blockbuster video. And I walked in, and they had all the new releases. It looked the same. It felt the same. It smelled the same as I remembered. And it was just like stepping into a time warp back to the 90s. And at that time, I had just finished my first movie. I fancied myself a filmmaker. And so first thing I did is find the manager and ask her, hey, would it be okay if I start bringing cameras around here and filming? Because I just, I have so many questions. You know, who are these people? How are you in business? Right. Why why DVDs? There's no Blu-ray. You know, what's what's going on here? And um, yeah, that was almost four years ago now. And the movie just came out. So I've been kind of living and breathing blockbuster video for a while. You know, I think people have kind of a love-hate relationship with Blockbuster from being a kid. In my town, I grew up in a small town. There wasn't any Blockbusters there. I didn't see them until I got a little older, maybe like high school, college age, in the military and stuff like that. That was the first time I was really around Blockbuster. Now, I used them a lot more then. Um, but I, I remember people talking about Blockbusters about, First off, you had the mom and pops, you know, that everyone went to and it had everything and they knew you and it even had the little beaded curtain to go in the back and rent, all that kind of stuff. And then Blockbuster comes on the scene. They're very family oriented. They're very kind of just a, they're almost like a, a dragon from the beginning. I mean, they just start kind of crushing competition right off the bat, like with no time at all. But you hear people saying they're, they they don't like it because it doesn't have that friendly atmosphere or it's too much or they charge late fees or the rewind fees or anything like that. In all the research that you did on this, did you come across 
anybody talking like that? Because, and granted, the the documentary talks a lot about people's love for it. Did you come across any of that where you had some kind of hate for Blockbuster other than Mr. Kaufman? Right. Uh, You know, when we started, we thought we would. Uh, Because I, you know, Zeke, my producer, and I, we're both of that era, and we were both, you know, fans of the local video store. And Blockbuster was the big corporate meanie that came in and drove everybody out of business. They were the Walmart of video stores, right? And the mom and pop stores were the local businesses. Um, And I was the kind of person, I also didn't have a Blockbuster in my town. I lived in such a small town, I rented movies at the local gas station. That's exactly where I did. Yep. And it was a quarter mile walk or I could ride my bike, but it was a highway. So it was sketchy. But, um, <laughs> but later, you know, high school and college, I, I grew fond of Blockbuster purely because they always had the new releases. You know, um, I would go to the mom and pop store to get the cool indie movies, right? you know, the, the weird, you know, obscure stuff or like just whatever, you know, cause the people there would recommend something cool and you could watch something and, and whatever, but they would never have the new releases. They wouldn't have the Matrix to save their life, right? They'd have all these cool movies I'd never heard of. So then I would also go to Blockbuster, and then you know, a couple of days later, I'd have to go back and return to both stores. But um, I really thought going into this that everybody would have this this anger, you know, this rage they were holding on to for this corporation that put all the video stores out of business. Right. But I think we really didn't come across that. And I think maybe it's either been enough time or people are so nostalgic for just renting movies in general that, you know, yes, Blockbuster was the big bad corporation of video renting, but all video rental stores are gone now. So you can't really hold it against them. Well, you know, and, and you say that uh, just recently within like the past week maybe week and a half family video has gone out of business now and they're liquidating all their stuff i think they have like i don't know like 30 days left or something like that but i've seen a lot on like facebook and people just posting hey went there and bought all these movies for you know next to nothing and it, it was funny to me in your movie where they talk about it and um I can't remember the guy's name, but he said he knew they were going out of business, so he just went and rented a bunch of movies and video games, and he was like, well, you're not getting these back because you're not going to need them anyway. Um, And so I think that was kind of his small way of getting back at Blockbuster for all those late fees, rewind fees. So, uh, you know, the thing that I remember most about, like you said, growing up, I rented at the gas station by my house too, and I always remember – like you said, the obscure. Now there wasn't a, they didn't have a ton of movies there. Uh, they had like, I think two shelves worth. And, um, I always remember chopping mall. I always remember the VHS of chopping mall with the, with the robot hand and the, the bag that came with it. And I own that now I own that movie. I never got to see it then, but that is what I think made people love those small outlets um because you could go into them and if they did rent games you could play the game systems they always had a game system there that you could play or they they always gave recommendations on what they thought with that how do you think that we went from there to these giant corporations because you know you go from these mom and pops to blockbuster which takes over pretty much everything then hollywood video jumps in the middle of it then family video jumps in the middle and by the end of it we're down to Redbox. 
but it's yeah. everywhere. It's on every corner. So how do right. we go from there to there? Do you have any idea about that? Yeah, and we, we got into that a little bit in the documentary, um, and that was all stuff I learned doing the research and everything. But basically what happened is the people with the money found out that this was making money. You know, that basically... I think uh, the owner of, of this small town store says in the 80s and 90s, it was basically like printing money. If you could afford to open a video store, right, you were going to make all the money. And I think with any industry, as soon as like the big corporate entities get a hold of that, get a whiff of that, like, oh, this is profitable. Well, we have enough money to open 5,000 stores. Let's make all the money. And we can, you know, it's the same thing that McDonald's did to the local burger joint. It's, it's just what happens when any one thing catches on like that. And, you know, you talk about Redbox now, they, it was genius what they did putting them. Cause basically like you and I grew up renting in the gas station. Right. Well, I don't know about yours, but I'm sure my gas station now has a Redbox at it. Yes, it instead does. Instead of that shelf of DVDs, because it's easier, you know, they just, they collect the rent basically from Redbox and Redbox makes all that money. And convenience is what we've seen winning out. I mean, that's why, you know, Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, and all that are are the kings of the castle now because you can't compete with convenience. I mean, Redbox is in every grocery store yep. across the country, basically, and every 7-Eleven and every gas station. And you can't, if you're a mom-and-pop store, you can't compete with that any more than you could compete with Blockbuster or Hollywood Video. But Blockbuster... Um, they were kind of mean about it. (laughs) (laughs) And we got into that in the movie too, because the store we follow, the last one, it was a mom and pop local store. It was called Pacific Video. And basically Blockbuster came in and said, we're going to make you an offer you can't refuse, right? You're going to be a Blockbuster or you're going to go out of business. Right. And they did that all across the country, all around the world. And so that kind of corporate greed and bullying it's not unique to video stores, but it's very exaggerated. Like you can clearly see the trajectory over the late eighties and early nineties of Blockbuster just going in and becoming the thing well, that wiped everything I, out. And I think to that point, uh, you talk about it in the movie. They continued that. I don't know if it. Well, yeah, I guess it would be a bullying when Netflix came to them and said, "Hey, work with us." Let's, uh, you know, we've got this great idea. And they laughed him out of the boardroom. And so you, you see that continuation of almost that idea too big to fail. And it really bit him in the ass in the end because, you know, something about Reed Hastings, I think you say it in the story, he had like $40 worth of late fees at Blockbuster, which made him want to start Netflix. Now, what's amazing to me, though, talking about Netflix and Amazon and stuff like that is, you, you have all these streaming, which I stream a ton of stuff now, um, and I'm a huge movie fan. I, I probably have, I don't know, uh, probably 700 to 1,000 DVDs, uh, maybe another 300 VHS. I've collected them ever since I was a kid. But now I've gone to streaming and digital. But it's amazing to me to see when you go to CVS or the grocery store how many people are still using the red box, how many people are still using that physical form of media. And I don't, I, I think like you said, with that convenience, do you think that those red boxes will be around for quite a while? Because there's really no overhead on them. They have your credit card. So if you don't bring the movie back, 
I mean, there's there's yeah. practically no overhead at all. Yeah, I mean, it's a great business model. I think of it from the standpoint of um, the filmmakers and the studios and the movies. Like, I think Adam Brody says it in our, in our doc, but like, at what point are they just going to stop making DVDs and Blu-rays? Yeah. Because if you if you look at like um, Walmart and Target and Best Buy, a couple of years ago the DVD section was like three aisles. It had you know a horror section, a comedy section, a new release section, all that. I was in a Target a couple of weeks ago. It's like half an aisle, and part of it is you know T-shirts and action figures, and they have <laughs> the Star Wars movies and like a, a five pack of '80s action hits, and that's it. And that's not because people aren't making movies. That's supply and demand. That means that people aren't buying physical media the way they used to. And so at a certain point, I think, for Redbox especially, if they can't keep stocking new movies because somebody at Netflix decides, you know, it's just not worth it to put Tiger King on DVD, <laughs> people will watch it. <laughs> you know, that Why make them? Why produce them? I'm always right. going to put movies you know we're coming out with our movie on vhs in and a couple weeks can we talk about that because that is of course i i absolutely love how it came out uh you have the blockbuster special edition now that's the first blockbuster special edition since 2011 correct yeah first blockbuster exclusive uh dvd blu-ray since 2011 and we we can't pin down the exact last movie because they were doing so many all at once and then right. they pulled the plug um uh, but we know that there hasn't been one. And we just talked to the store and we're, we're for this store. We're now the number one documentary for sales of all time. So wow. <laughs> these big block. Congratulations. Well, I don't think a lot of people went in and bought an inconvenient truth at, at blockbuster. <laughs> so we're, I, we're it definitely there. was in that bargain bin when they were going out of business. It was definitely right. there. I've seen our movie now because they loaded up a huge rental wall. And it's still on the rental. It's still a new release, of course. But, right. you know, it's already – there's previously viewed copies. People already buy previously viewed DVDs of this movie. And it's just – it makes me giggle a little bit. Like, we, we always wanted to finish the movie while the store was still open. Spoiler for the documentary, but people can Google it and they'll know it's open. Right. But when we got that DVD on that shelf, it was like we had achieved this big monumental goal that we had set out to do. And that's what I was going to ask you. It's got to be surreal. Like, all this time you spend in blockbusters growing up and stuff, and then your movie is on the wall. It's got to be, like, super surreal to walk into that. Yeah. And it, I, I'll be honest, I had made a couple movies before, and when I first went in there four years ago, I had a movie that I had just finished, and I said, hey, can can you put this on the shelf in the special interest? You know, it was another documentary. And when that first happened back in, in 2017, it was that surreal, surreal feeling of I've got a movie in Blockbuster Video. I know it's just this one, and I know it's not a huge deal to most people, but it was a big deal to me as someone Absolutely. who grew up loving Blockbuster Video. And now to think that you know we've got the first Blockbuster exclusive in a decade, and we've got you know the number one movie on the shelf now and the, the best selling documentary at blockbuster yeah there's only one blockbuster we're in all of them you know yeah but here cool but here's the thing you now even with this you now are part of blockbuster history 
there's no way they can talk about Blockbuster ever in the future and not talk about you guys. It's it's impossible. You made the documentary about the last Blockbuster. You always have to be included in that conversation. They always have to invite you to the table now. And and That's that true. that is an amazing thing to think about. This we 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 say over and over this behemoth that was just crushing people out of the way and pushing people out of the way and even Netflix and your movie is the final testament of Blockbuster. That's that's amazing. That is pretty cool. And I I do love, you know, when you when you start making a documentary, um, you tell people, you tell everybody, hey, I'm making I'm working on a movie about Blockbuster videos. So for the past four years, you know, to my friends and family, I'm like the Blockbuster guy. Right. <laughs> I got this attached to me. And I don't mind because I love movies and basically I feel like it's just a a badge that says I love movies and what do you like? Let's talk about it. And, uh, you know, my other documentaries too about music, it's like, I love talking about this stuff. I love making these movies, so I don't mind it. But now it's like, I do feel like I'm a part of this very small blockbuster family now that's Sandy, the manager and Ken, the owner and the five or six kids that work there now, you know, it's during 2020, they had to kind of downsize a little bit because they can't really have a lot of people in the store and it's, you know, the COVID right. regulations. So there is a lot of online business. So um, they've kind of changed the way they do things, but I still, I'm in there every, every month or so dropping off DVDs and, and seeing everything. And it's, it is a surreal feeling to be like part of this. It is like a family there. It's weird that Blockbuster is now a small family business, but it That's is. That's what I was just about to say. What we talked about in the beginning. Now when you go in there, they know you. Yep. And they talk about it a little in the film. You, you've got one that says, you know, if you're a regular, you know to have a, either out your license or your membership card or whatever, and they know that you're a regular there. But did they really ever know you were a regular there? I mean, they talk about it in the movie. They had people wrapped around the store just to check out the video, you know, just to check out at the front yeah. counter. So did they ever really know anyone until they got small? And it, it, it seems once again, we go back to the same word and I hate to say it again, but so surreal that they were this big faceless corporation and now they've been to reduce to what they destroyed. Yeah. I, I think it was a gradual transition for this store in particular. And Sandy, who's the manager, kind of the main character in our movie when she started there in 2004, that was the peak. That was when Blockbuster had right. the most locations, 9,000-something locations all around the world, and the corporate machine was running. DVDs were the biggest thing in the world, and it was the most profitable, craziest time for Blockbuster. So she's been on the whole ride down to what they are now. Right. And I think that what you're talking about, about knowing the regulars and it feeling like the local mom and pop video store that was a transition um over the past uh, what is that 17 years now yeah. of you know they had this corporate control and in bend here in central oregon it's a small like i said 90,000 people now in 2004 it was probably 60,000 and there were four blockbusters here <laughs> which is yeah i mean that's crazy, crazy. To think yeah about. i mean you, you yeah so they didn't really know the regulars that well yeah because there was it was too big it was crazy but over the past 10 years or so you definitely do see 
you're like Jared, the local film critic who's in our movie. Every time I go in Blockbuster, I see him. You know, I recognize him, and the, the employees know him, and I know all the employees now, and and they do have regulars. You know, there's people, they know they're going to come in every couple weeks, and they're going to want the new release, and they're going to want a recommendation for a Western because they love Westerns. You know, when this guy comes in, you know, if there's if there's a new Clint Eastwood movie, you're going to make his week, right? Right. That's, and Which, they, they know that. He's like 175 and still making movies. It's (laughs) it's unbelievable about Clint Eastwood. I think he's got like two movies coming out next year. So of course he does. Uh, yeah. So, you know, when you talk about that and you, you talk about the, the store in general and you said, you know, they've had to switch kind of to online sales and stuff. They've really gotten creative about how they make money at this store. I mean, I think she knits like wool caps now and they sell bumper stickers and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's so funny to see how creative they've gotten just to keep this store open. Cause it's just the thing that won't go away. And I think, in that area, I don't think that town's going to let it go away. It seems like it has a very good following behind it. And you mentioned, like, people come in and they want the new release and they want a recommendation for a Western. But we go back to streaming. If they just look there, there's a million Westerns on there. I mean, you can see stuff that's in Italian. You can see stuff from, you, you know, and and still they go to get that human interaction. Yeah, and that... That's one of the things that's hurt them the most during COVID is that, you know, while it was more convenient, it's always been more convenient to turn on Netflix and watch a movie, that human interaction kind of kept them going and made it cool. You know, I was like a kid that loved going to the video store and would spend an hour browsing or more and not even browsing, but talking to Whoever I was with, we would just go look at the movie boxes and laugh. Like, why did they make this bad ripoff of a, you know, a Friday the 13th movie? Oh, it must be terrible. Let's look at the back. Should we rent it? No. Okay. And we do that for 50 movies in a night. And you still see people doing that at Blockbuster, at least before COVID hit. You'd still see people in there having so much fun, smiling, looking at... The difference between what that experience is like and sitting on your couch going, no, I don't want to watch that. No, I don't want to watch that. No, I don't want to watch that. It's night and day. And I I do think the town is going to hang on to it as long as we can. And the, you know, it's it's now kind of a point of pride. It's like a tourist destination. We've got the last blockbuster in the world and there's people coming from all over the world just to see it. So it's pretty pretty cool. They've even kind of hooked up with Airbnb, and you can you can stay the night and watch, and it's set up like an 80s living room. And, I mean, they've gotten really creative. But talking about when you go to um, – when you look through the boxes and stuff, I think that that is an art form that's gone away because if you look back in the day and you look through the we'll, – we'll talk about the 80s and 90s that we grew up in. That was the most amazing cover art of anything, like – it could be the shittiest movie in the world. And if it had an awesome cover art, you were going to rent it. And and it yeah. might even change your mind that it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, because of the cover art. Exactly. And the, the beauty was in the era before the internet, you know, you couldn't look it up. You couldn't see the trailer. You know, now there's people in Blockbuster now, they'll pick up a box and go, well, this looks interesting. And then they'll watch the trailer on their phone to see if they want to rent it, which is great. And convenience is great. 
but there was that mystery back in the 80s and 90s where <laughs> you'd look and you'd be like, well, I guess they did make another Pauly Shore movie. Well, it's probably a comedy because his movies are comedies. And look, it's got a goofy thing on the. I'll I'll get it. Or you'd see like those painted covers where it's yeah you know, has almost nothing to do with the movie itself. None of the people who are in it are on the cover, and it's you know it's like a weird skull with you know dragon wings or something. And as a twelve-year-old boy, that that was exciting. Like, oh, that's gonna be cool. This one's got fire on it. Yep. You know. It's got whatever. And and you'd find those gems. And often they were terrible, terrible, terrible movies. Terrible movies, yeah. But sometimes they weren't. Or it didn't matter because we were so starved for content. Like, I watched a lot of bad movies as a kid, and I probably didn't realize movies could be bad until I was 15, 16 years old. I just thought all movies are great. But here's so, the know, thing. Beastmaster I love those and movies. Beastmasters, too. Oh, yeah. Great movies. Uh, great movies. But what is that? Not. Rip Rip Torn that's in there? That was like the uh, that was like uh, Conan's uh, alcoholic brother that uh, right. hung out. Yeah, great movie though. Uh, Tan- sure. uh, Tanya Roberts. Uh, yep. I I can't remember who. What was his name? Dar. Oh, I don't remember. I think the Beastmaster's name was like Dar or something like that. But I know he had ferrets. That yeah. Was. Yeah. You know, I listened to a, a podcast where they talked about kind of to get off topic for a minute, but I listened to a podcast where they talked about uh, that movie being made. They kind of made fun of the movie. There was so much animal cruelty going on on that wow. that that set. Like the the black tiger, that was a spray painted tiger. Like they spray painted it like daily, and I think <laughs> they went through a couple different sets of ferrets and stuff like. But that was movies back then. Like they, you know, they put that that disclaimer up there. No animals were harmed during the filming. Yeah, but as soon as the camera shut off, they were getting tossed in the dumpster or whatever. I mean, it. That was the yeah. way movies were made. And when you go back, I think that the '80s is probably the greatest era of movies that have ever come out. Yeah, and I do. I don't disagree. I do another show with a buddy of mine called Metal and Movies, and we we break down a, a classic album or a classic movie. And when you look through just, I mean, you can look through select years of the 80s, like 84 and 86, and just the amount of classics that came out in one year is unbelievable when you start looking at the lists and stuff. And you really don't see that anymore. What you do see, though, is a lot of independent filmmakers like yourself really making a splash now like people are really starting to set up and pay attention well the barrier to entry has dramatically lowered you know in the 80s you if you couldn't if you weren't part of the system you couldn't afford like a film camera to to shoot a movie any movie at all the worst independent movies you can think of cost twice as much as any movie i've made and that's just you know, the, the economics of it and the, the way the system worked and it was much more difficult. And now, you know, people are shooting movies on their iPhones that are you know, winning awards all over the place. And, and that's great. That's, that's kind of the world. But yeah, to your point of them not making as many movies, you know, you think about the 80s and like 84, 85, 86. Mm-hmm. Each one of those years has you know, 20 movies that stick with us. And how many right. of those came out in 2019? I don't know. Two, maybe. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. 2019, and then when you look forward to 2021, uh, Warner Brothers just made that big announcement that everything that they have that's big is coming to HBO Max. 
So how big, and this is a question to you, how big are movies now? We've lost cinema. We've lost video rental stores. You and I have talked and said, you know, everything is on digital. Where are we at with movies? Are, are, are we in a, not a panic mode, but are we close to losing the movie industry? Uh, it's possible. You know, it's, it's hard to say. I think independent film is going to stick around um, forever. But I, I think of it a lot like what happened to the music industry in the late 90s. Okay. Um, in the late 90s, a CD was $18, and they were selling like crazy. You know, MTV was still playing videos. Radio was how most people got their music. It was the biggest thing. You know, it was amazing, the amount of money that was going through the music industry. And then Napster hit, and then piracy happens, and then you can burn CDs, and it all kind of went away in just a couple of years. And the independent artists who were never making a million bucks, it didn't affect them. You know, they're still making 500 bucks playing a gig and on to the next, or selling their T-shirts or whatever it was. And people had to learn how to cope in that new economy where you're not going to get the million dollar record deal but you can still make the art if that's what you're doing it for and you can reach with the internet with napster you could reach more and more and more people than you ever could before you're not just selling your cassette tapes out of the trunk of your car now but you're not going to make that money so if you think about the way that's happening with movies because everything is streaming now and Anybody can put their movie up on Amazon Prime, but it pays. Amazon Prime pays independent filmmakers six cents an hour on the high end, and it goes down to one cent an hour for people watching your movie. Well, it's more the more popular it gets, doesn't it go down? The more no, and more the people opposite. start watching, the more popular it is, the more money you make. Okay, because so I was thinking that they movie, they switched it around. Because I was talking to someone, and I thought they had said it was the opposite that that. You know, because they they can make their money back, but it takes forever. Right. And without theaters, so theaters, that's where the big studios make their money back, right? James Bond will open, it'll make $300 in the first weekend, and they're even. They're good. You know, the Avengers makes a billion worldwide just in theaters before it ever hits streaming. Stuff like that. And that's great for the billion-dollar movies. They need that. Uh, But if that goes away, you're still going to have people like me making movies for under $100,000 and we'll be able to make that money back slowly. You know, one, I sell DVDs out of my garage still for my first couple of movies and I'm willing to make the money back 15 bucks at a time. Right. (laughs) But the big studios are not willing to do that. So it could affect the industry uh, for people like me for the better. Absolutely. There is more opportunity for independent film and for, you know, people to find that 2020 was awful for a lot of reasons, but I think we're lucky to have put out a movie in 2020 when Hollywood had shut down and there weren't a lot of movies coming out. The movies that were done were put on hold. Black Widow still isn't out. Right. Right. But we were able to put ours out and we filled that little window. I think more people are watching it now on Amazon, on iTunes, on Fandango or wherever because Hollywood didn't put out 10 movies in December. They put out Wonder Woman, and that's it. Yeah, and and the whole thing with that, you know, I had talked to another guy about a movie he had made, and and it was really, like, seriously in the middle of the quarantine. 
And a lot of drive-ins were released in theaters. Well, his was a small film. I think he made it for like 200000 250000 something like that. It was a, a, a found footage horror film. And he was like, they put me in drive-in theaters, and I was the number one movie for two weeks in America because mm-hmm. they put me in drive-ins because there were no theaters. And I thought, man, that's, that's a cool badge of honor to kind of wear is, yeah, I was the number one movie. Um, yeah. No slight at it being an independent film. It shows that people still wanted to get out there, and I think that the more we talk about that, where they make these billion-dollar movies, they can go one of two ways. Those billion-dollar movies can flop, too, and we've seen a lot of them in the past five years really take a hard nosedive. I mean, even you mentioned Wonder Woman coming out in December. That's getting horrible. It dropped a rotten on Rotten Tomatoes uh, today or yesterday. Yeah. It's just you're dumping all this money into it, and then guys like you come along who just want to make a film and, you know, damn the rules, and and you go out. And I think that's what's really going to – that resilience is what's going to really come out of this thing in movies. And I think we're going to see a lot more film that way. And this is the time to strike right now. Yeah, I hope so. I I do think, you know, if movie theaters survive this – they are going to be looking for content. And if the studios are going straight to streaming, like they've all said they're going to do, then it's going to be, you know, who who doesn't still want that experience of going to the movie theater, getting the popcorn, and now they all sell beer, and it's like a whole fun thing. You know, the cool theaters that have the, the couches right. and the vibe and all that. I love those. Um, and I, I don't care. I don't want to see Wonder Woman like that, but I do want to see the indie movie that isn't playing anywhere else that isn't on Netflix that isn't on Hulu that somebody just made for the love of movies that belongs in these theaters. And if, you know, there's, there's talk of like Cinemark and AMC are going to be bought out by Amazon or Netflix even. And so what are they only going to show Amazon original movies? I don't think so. That doesn't make any sense. They don't make enough movies. It's not a logical thing. So I think they're always going to want, content and we're never going to have the era like the 80s and 90s when you know people who are making independent movies they were on the shelf of blockbuster right next to the hollywood movie you know yeah. you and i would go and we'd be like do i want transformers or transmorphers i, well, I was hoping you were going to say that movie Trans- yeah. what is that the asylum studio that does all those sure yeah yeah and there were more even so in the 80s when you know you could really fool people if you could Absolutely. just make a movie at all, it would be at all the rental stores and it would be right next to the you know, the $500 million movie. Well, they would, weren't that expensive back then, but, you know, and back then people didn't know. I, I have no idea to this day how much it cost them to make Ghostbusters, and I don't care. But everybody knows that, you know, Spider-Man's going to be $250 million. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's what we talk about? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's not about the art anymore. It's about how much they've put money into it or how much the studio has backed it up. And, you know, some of my favorite films are independent. Uh, one of my, f- like, top three, uh, No Country for Old Men, um, is a very uh, hell or high water. They're very um, independent film. I know they've got some big people attached to them, some big names attached to them, but they have that very much where it wasn't widely released, people didn't, you know. Uh, and and I have a feeling that these 
these studios, these small studios, the only thing I worry about with these small studios is they seem to, once they kind of catch fire, they get bought out by a bigger studio. Like if you look at like Blumhouse, I mean, it started out making some great horror movies and then Universal said, hey, come over here. We'll build you haunted houses for our theme park in, in Halloween. You can make all the Halloweens. And I'm not saying that their movies aren't good anymore because they're fun popcorn movies. But they took that independent streak and sold out to the bigger studio to kind of get that security blanket. Yeah. And and so that's what I worry about in the future is in when I ask you about the movie industry as a whole, it seems to me like everyone is looking for a security blanket right now. Or, or a lot yeah. of people are. Yeah. I mean, uh, who wouldn't be, right? If I, if I was at the Bloomhouse level from 10 years ago and somebody offered me, hey, we got all the money in the world. You can make whatever you want. You got to follow a few corporate rules and you'll be fine. Right. I would have taken that deal. I'm, I'm sure most independent filmmakers would. Um, cause it takes away that the risk, like you said, it's a security blanket, it's a safety net. It, it makes it so, you know, you, you can take those risks. No independent filmmaker could make a wonder woman 84 <laughs> because no, no, we can't afford to lose $200 million. Right. But, but Warner brothers can, they can, they can make all these DC movies and, some of them will make a little bit of money overseas and that some of them can tank. But as long as overall HBO max is getting the subscribers, they don't care. You know, they don't need, they don't need these movies all to succeed. Whereas if you're, if you're me or if you're someone else making independent films and you make one movie that doesn't break even, you're out all that money. Right. And it's, it's rough to try to get back on your feet and make the next one. How do you so. sell that to your, your wife and family? <laughs> it was a hard sell. What happened was... Um, <laughs> I'm, can I hear this pitch meeting for the last blockbuster to your wife? Well, the last blockbuster was easier because I didn't have to travel that much for it. It was okay. here in town. Um, and I had just put out my first movie. The week that I started blockbuster, I had just released my first movie. We had gone... Uh, it's, it's about a band in Arizona, so we went to Phoenix for the premiere, and she got to do the red carpet thing, and it was it was a good time to ask if I could start another movie. You know, we were high off of oh, this is what making movies is like. This is so exciting, um, and that movie had also broken even and was starting to make a little bit of money. Okay. So it's it's not like I hadn't proven that I could do it, but for the first movie, it was a big ask. It was, um, you know, I had some money in savings from filming weddings and real estate and commercials and things like that for several years. Um, and we had just moved back to Oregon and it was either make a movie or get a job. And I had gone, I had filled out applications and gone on interviews and looked at these job offers and I went, God, if that's what I can make doing that. I think I should try to make a movie and see if that works. And to my wife's credit, she gave me one year. She said, if you can, you know, you've got enough in savings, you can't fund the movie. You're going to have to do a Kickstarter, but you can pay your half of the bills right. for one year. And, uh, and that was five years ago. And I've made three movies since then. And they're all kind of 
doing okay. It's I don't make as much as I would probably at a decent full-time job, but I make a little bit of money and I'm doing what I love and we're not starving. So that's <laughs> that's how <laughs> she gave me one year five years ago. We haven't revisited the conversation. Oh, good, good. Well, you know, the, at, le- <laughs> at least there wasn't like a, we should check back in on this, but what is it about documentaries with you? Because documentaries, as I get older and older, be- have become my favorite kind of film just to kind of learn. And it gives it, what is it about documentaries that draw you to them? Because how many, this is what your third documentary. Yeah. Third documentary. Yeah. So what is it that, that draws you to the documentary? Well, foolishly, when I was starting out, I thought it would be easier. It's not, I've done, I've done some work on narrative films and I've done a bunch of shorts and I can tell you, it's not easy. I mean, Blockbuster, it's out now, it took almost four years to make. And that's, I mean, that's working at least part-time on it for four years and some weeks way more than full-time. But um, I love them as a subject matter and certainly for the nostalgia. If, if I wanted to make a period piece that took place in the 80s, I can't afford that. You oh, know. no. The cars alone are way out of my budget. But, um, you know, I can tell a story about the 80s through a documentary or about the 90s or whatever. Um, You just can. The barrier to entry is very low because I don't need a writer. I don't need a script. I don't need, you know, a crew of 50 people and actors and contracts and hair and makeup and all these things. And there is a lot of contracts and we did have hair and makeup. We we did end up having a lot of those things, but to start out, it just seemed more accessible. Like I've got a camera and I've got a microphone. I, I can make a documentary. Right. turns out there's a lot more to it than that. And it's a lot of work and takes a whole lot of people, but I've learned I, that I just in podcasting. I mean, it it's, yeah, I have a full-time job and, and the extra time that it takes to watch movies or read books or, you know, get stuff ready. It, people have no idea how much goes into it, editing and all that kind of stuff. But when you talk about that, you have some pretty big names in your movie. How how did that come about? I mean, because you've got some really big, you've got some Hollywood royalty in there. Yeah, I, I think we do. And that was, well, like I said, we were working on it for four years. And so we started, uh, Zeke, my producing partner and I, we started years ago, we made a list of everybody we thought would be great to talk about blockbuster video or to talk about video renting. And we knew, you know, Quentin Tarantino got his start at a video store and so did Kevin Smith. And so did, you know, um, a lot of people, Paul Shear and Paul Shear got his start at a video store, Adam Brody. And so they were all on the list from, from day one. And we kind of just started with who we knew, uh, my partner on the movie, used to work in Hollywood. He was a writer on the Weird Al show and Dexter's Lab and Powerpuff Girls. And oh. he was kind of connected a little bit. But his good friend um, from back then was James Arnold Taylor, the voice actor. He's Obi-Wan Kenobi and all the Star Wars things. So that was our first... By the interview. way, not to cut you off, the best Star Wars stuff other than The Mandalorian is the stuff that that guy's in. is fantastic yeah, Star Wars stuff. No, he's uh, and he's a great guy, and I was geeking out, you know, just just getting to meet him and talk about Star Wars. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, 
and he was also one of the Ninja Turtles. I'm a huge Ninja Turtle fan. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Just, yeah, yeah. He was Leonardo in the, the mid-2000s movie. But he's uh, just a great guy. And what happens, and this happened with my other documentaries too, is you just you tell people you're making a movie about Blockbuster and it starts to spread. So he's friends with somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows Kevin Smith, right? Um, and that was how we did the bulk of it. That's how Jamie Kennedy came about also. And with him, we didn't even know he had that great connection to Blockbuster. We just thought, how cool would it be to have him talk about his character from Scream, who was this video store clerk? Right. And then he dropped that bomb on us of, you know, my first real job in Hollywood was Blockbuster Video. <laughs> we had no idea. Um, he was part yeah, of the Adventure Crew or something like that, the Blockbuster the Crew. Blockbuster or... Entertainment Team. Team, that's with right. Jim Gaffigan. <laughs> yeah, and, wow. Uh, we reached out to Jim Gaffigan. He did not want to revisit his time <laughs> on the Blockbuster Entertainment Team. No he's too busy selling minivans right now. I, I think exactly. he's doing minivan commercials now. But, you know, when you talk about that and you talk about guys like Paul Shear, a lot of people, if you ask on the surface, don't know who Paul Shear is, but he's in, he's got his finger in everything in Hollywood. Uh, one of his best friends, Jason Manzukas, uh, all of these, you know, that's how I got into podcasting was their podcast. Uh, how did this get made? And yeah. it really made one me one of wanna, my favorites. Too. Yeah. It made me want to make a podcast uh, because of them. But you see these guys that, that people don't really know. They're like, Hey, I know that guy he's in this cause he's in so much stuff, but they have no idea like the history that they know. I mean, Paul does another podcast um, called unspooled. Is it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Unspooled where he does the like top 100 movies of all times. Like the knowledge that these guys have from their time at blockbuster. You look at like yeah. Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith and that's how they got it going. I was never into it where I had a, uh, a video rental job or anything. I worked at a grocery store, but from those video rental stores and all those movies that we talked about, those crap movies and stuff like that, that's where I built my knowledge was in all of these kind of films. Is it the same way with you where you just, it was just hit and miss and you, you compiled what you liked and what you didn't like and then taste change and you now like what you didn't like. And is that how it was for you too? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I was, very limited at that at, uh, gas station movie rack. So I rented all those movies and I liked what I liked. And I was, yeah, taste changed. I think in the 80s, I was real big into Pauly Shore movies and, you know, Revenge of the Nerds and <laughs> stuff like that. But I was also into Star Wars and Back to the Future. And I'm still very much into Star Wars and Back to the Future. And I think, you know, it's. I'm real into liking stuff. Like I'm, I like Wonder Woman eighty four. I like the Mandalorian, and I also like Episode nine, which nobody likes. Right? It's you it's, lost uh, me on that last. I think you cut out. You what go. was that last part? <laughs> That's the thing. It. I, I'm just over hating on stuff, especially movies. Once, once I learned how hard it was to make a movie, mm -hmm. like any movie. The fact that they even exist is a miracle. The whole world is telling you you can't make this. You're never going to finish this. It's never going to come out, you know. And that's the same whether you're making a five thousand dollar movie or a five hundred million dollar movie. And so, you know, when something like Wonder Woman comes out and everybody's like, ah, it's not as good as it should have been, 
I'm like, yeah, but the scene in the mall was fun. Come on, guys. Let's have uh, fun. Let's same, like stuff. Isn't that the same mall that was used in Chopping Mall and Commando, I think? Uh, it's in L.A. I'm, I'm almost positive it's the same. And it was used in uh, Stranger Things. There you go. And I love it. And I would like to go there. Yeah, it's there. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's uh, right across from where they film. Uh, how did this get made? Oh, well, it's a uh, yeah. The uh, I can't think of the theater name, but it's right across the street from it. They talk about it all the time. So yeah, it's still around. And and I love that stuff. Like the '80s, like I said, were the best era to me at, at ever. Uh, movie-wise, music-wise, everything. '90s, I was a little older, so it was. I like different things than I did in the eighties. I was a kid. I wanted to be Indiana Jones and I had a bullwhip and a fedora and I looked really stupid, uh, walking around with a bullwhip and a, a fedora on it at eight years old. There was, there was something that I would like to talk to you about with, um, Lloyd Kaufman, how you came okay. across Lloyd Kaufman for the movie. And you know, he, of all the people that are in the movie, he had the most disdain for, blockbuster and he's known in hollywood i don't think he's ever lost a nickel on a movie uh in in all the stuff and i think he started out some great guys didn't james gunn do toxic avenger and now he's one of the biggest guys in hollywood yeah and the south park guys came out of there right so how do you first off how do you find him to talk about this how do you know that he doesn't like these guys and then two when you talk to him it's a very short, I think it's like 120 seconds, they say in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Can we go into that conversation a little bit? Because I would love to hear it because sure. he just was spitting venom. Like, he was angry about these guys. Well, he was um, he was on my list and, and my producer's list uh, purely out of respect. You know, we thought it's great to talk to Hollywood people who have been in Hollywood movies, but what about the independent people? And I knew from growing up that trauma movies weren't at Blockbuster, at least not at the corporate Blockbusters. Right. So I thought, well, he's going to have an interesting take. He's going to be the, the pro mom and pop store and the anti-Blockbuster guy. And that's great because we needed that because we were finding that most people just were looking back with rose-colored glasses and thinking, man, movie renting was fun. And they weren't giving us those sound bites that we knew were out there, you know, the anti-corporate thing. And we figured maybe Lloyd will will give us that. And I was in New York working on another documentary, the, the ska music one that came out last year. And uh, somebody had canceled. So my cinematographer and I, we had like half a day free. And we're like, well, who do we know in New York that might be cool to get for this blockbuster one? And Lloyd had been on our list, but we hadn't reached out or anything. We just figured... You know, one day we'll catch him at a horror movie convention or something. Right. It'll be great because he does all those. He'll come to your Absolutely. town for his movie screening if there's 50 people there. He's great like that. And he has that independent spirit that I really resonate with where it's like he's still selling DVDs out of the trunk of his car. Right. He's not a young, no spring chicken. But what we did is we just, um, I think we found the number and called the trauma office. And we said, we're making a documentary. Can we interview Lloyd? And they said, what's it about? And we said, Blockbuster Video. And they said, okay, well, we'll check and we'll call you back. And like an hour later, they were like, yeah, go to his house. Here's the address. And wow. So, so we did. Yeah, I was blown away. But, you know, it was 
we're, we're making a movie and he has a lot of respect for people. Just like I said, making any movie is very hard. Nobody knows that better than Lloyd Kaufman. Right. So he let us in and he's, I've looked up to him for 30, 35 years. Um, big fan of the old trauma movies. I haven't kept up lately, but you know, Toxic Avenger was a big part of my childhood. And so we're geeking out and it's awesome just to meet him and he's a right. nice guy. And then as soon as we turn the cameras on, he snaps into that character. It's not a character, but he just that Tromaville president. Exactly. He's uh, and what you see in our movie is that's what he gave us for about a ninety-minute interview. Wow. Was just spitting venom, like you said. He hates blockbuster video more than I think anyone on the planet. So we were lucky in that regard to get you know a villain for the movie. And then our editor had this great idea. Because it it's almost too negative. Um, he's like, if we keep putting him in throughout the movie, it's just a downer. It's a bummer every time he pops up. So that's why he made that little uh, you know, 120 seconds of Lloyd Kaufman. Because <laughs> right. that's about as much as you could take. Uh, but for me, it's like, what a fun day. I got to hang out with Lloyd Kaufman, talk Absolutely. about movies, talk about making movies. And then when we stopped the interview, he went upstairs at his house and he brought down this blockbuster uniform that someone had given him because they knew how much he hated blockbuster. And he shot that whole bit with us where he says like, welcome to blockbuster. He's wearing the uniform. We didn't bring him that. He had that. So, I mean, he's a great guy and he signed a toxic Avenger poster for me. Uh, It's just, it was a cool day. And that, that is one of the things I love the most about making documentaries. You know, you asked why I make documentaries as opposed to, regular movies but yeah i got to spend a day talking about movies with lloyd kaufman and another day talking about movies with kevin smith and jamie kennedy and paul Shear. yeah and that's my job that's pretty awesome yeah yeah so uh if you can describe the house a little bit because you can see a little bit <laughs> it it's it has to be just organized chaos in that house my house or Lloyd Kaufman's house? Lloyd Kaufman's, not not your house. Okay. Uh, Lloyd Kaufman's house. Well, you can see a little bit of my house here. But yeah, at his house, uh, it's, it's a nice, you know, uh, for New York, it's huge, you know. And right. it's, there's a, a gargoyle on the outside of the Toxic Avenger, which you, there's a brief clip of in our dog right. that I, I couldn't believe it when I saw it. You know, we're looking up and down the street, which one is his house? Oh, it's the one with the Toxic Avenger on it, of course. <laughs> um, I, you know, I didn't go upstairs, but it's a, a pretty big house for New York. and A lot of memorabilia? Nice yard. A lot of stuff. A lot of, um, not like the official memorabilia like you or I would collect, but like a lot right. of fan art and a lot of stuff people had made for him. And he had some props from the movies and just really cool stuff and it's kind of like like my grandparents house like they were had some money and it was nice and it was a fancy place but like instead of antiques from japan it's toxic avenger statues you know it's <laughs> no no samurai out, swords right swap out all the like antiques your grandparents had for you know a, a custom painting of, of sergeant kabuki man you know that kind of thing yeah not that that is a crazy movie very crazy movie. Not, I don't know if it's as crazy as Samurai Cop, but uh, it's definitely uh, definitely crazy. 
Uh, let's go back to the Blockbuster for a minute. I want to talk about the actual Blockbuster store. When when you go there and you meet these people, and in four years you become, like you said, part of their family. Um, and it's got to be different than the other documentaries you shot. Of course, you get close with who you're shooting. You you learn their ins and outs. But but four years of this just middle class American family, and and the whole family's behind this. What, what goes on with you? It's got to be a different feeling for you making this than your other documentaries, just with the closeness to the quote-unquote characters. Yeah, yeah. The The best thing that came out of this was getting to be friends with Sandy. <laughs> she's she's so awesome, and she, she is the heart of that store, and she keeps it going. And like you said, her whole family is involved. Now that it's online, she's got her parents in there packing up shipments, her kids – you know, it's it's a real family affair, and and just getting to meet all these people and become a part of not just the blockbuster part of their lives, but like you know, we text each other Merry Christmas and mm-hmm. Happy Birthday and stuff like that. We're we're friends, and that was that was a slow evolution. You know, at first we were the annoying guys with the cameras who kept coming right. by the store and taking up her time, but we were the first people to ever interview her because when we started they weren't the last blockbuster there were still a dozen or so left so no one was poking around no one was asking you know people people really started to care when they became the last blockbuster but for the couple years before that it was just us coming by every couple months hey anything new sandy what are you doing this week i gotta fix these old computers okay well we're gonna film some of that okay and she would be like all right i guess but then when the hype train started going and, and you know, CNN is there and Fox News and MSNBC and the Ellen DeGeneres show comes and everybody wants, you know, to talk about Blockbuster, then it's like we were, I don't know, like, like bodyguards. We were protecting her. You know, she would call us and be like, should I do this interview? Should I? I don't know. They, they want to come and take over the whole store for a whole day. What do you guys think? You know, because... We had been with her with cameras for a couple of years before other people called. So it, right. it really is like a bond very different than any other project I've worked on. And I'm really grateful for it because we are kind of all friends now and more than that family. And she's rooting for us, right? The movie came out and she's very excited when she calls me and says, we sold out of DVDs and you got to bring more. Wow. You know, we're, we're all rooting for each other. And that makes me really happy too because – we made this movie, it's like a love letter to Blockbuster Video and to video renting in general. Absolutely. But the fact that now, if people buy the DVD from the store, you know, half that money goes to support the store, and the other half goes to support us independent artists. So when she's selling DVDs, I feel like we are helping a little tiny bit to keep Blockbuster alive. And to talk about being part of the legacy, you know, that's, well, that's huge it- for me. It's almost a symbiotic relationship. I mean, she sells the movies, part of it goes to her, and she's also furthering your career so you don't have to have those discussions with your wife when you want to make the film, you know? It's a very symbiotic relationship that you're probably not going to see with other films that you make or films that you have made in the past. There's not really that need for it after it's over. It always amazes me after I do an interview, you know, I still stay in touch with people that that I interview and stuff like that and and ask, you know, what we can do to promote. But 
it, it almost seems like when you're done with that kind of stuff, it's, you have to move on to the next one. You, you got to keep going. And, and I love that and I hate it because it, it introduces you to so many people, but also when you find that interesting person or that person that you want to know more about or learn more about, you don't have time for that. And so right. it's very nice to see that you still are with, you know, talking with these people, you're still in the same town, all that kind of stuff. I go up to Oregon uh, every once in a while and um, my wife's from the Northwest and um, it's a different kind of world up there. Uh, and I, I would especially think where you're at in central Oregon, uh, it has that small town feel to it. Um, very much so where if you would have shot this in say New York city, it wouldn't have the same kind of uh, closeness in it. No, no, it wouldn't have the heart. I mean, I don't know if I would have done it because Honestly, I'm sure that there's some last video store in New York that's still holding out and somebody's going to make a great documentary about it. But that's not that's not what I wanted to do. That's not what we wanted to do. When we found out the story of this store and how they they were always independent and it was always this mom and pop store and then we met the people, you know, and then we we learned about what happened to Blockbuster Video and why they went out of business and there's this this store with these great people at it that's still doing their best and hanging on and it has so much to do with this town and like the size of the town and it just sort of they've never been forced out by if somebody wanting to lease the space that they're in because you know it's a small town there's not right we just got our first chick-fil-a it's it's oh really slow going over here yeah how uh how do you feel about that chick-fil-a i i haven't been i'm i'm vegan so Oh, well, yeah, don't, don't go. go there. That's chicken. I was, yeah, and I was just I've about heard. to ask you about Burgerville, but I'm taking that one off the, the thing now. Yeah, not always vegan, but not uh, not interested. But they, the town, like it's the size of town where that was front page news when Chick-fil-A came. Well, you know? so are you kind of a, I, I know this is going to sound like super cheesy to say, but are you kind of like a local hero now? I, I mean, like a local where people are like, I don't know, hero, but a, a local kind of celebrity. Like, hey, this guy made a movie about our town. Right. We have been in the entertainment section of the local paper. Nice. Probably 20 times over the past four years. And they'll call for updates. What's going on with the movie? You know, When's the movie coming out? That kind of thing. Um, and I, I am involved in the local film community, and there's a little bit of a... a film community here but not much uh we have a great film festival that is is um i don't know better than it has any right to be for the size of town and brings in a lot of people from around so it's actually in bin the Mm -hmm. the the film festival is Mm -hmm. have you been up to astoria yeah i love astoria that's they have a they have a great uh right they have a great uh movie theater there though that's still open a super old theater um I think they show like one movie, maybe a day, two movies, maybe a day, but it still has the balcony. Um, oh, cool. you, you have to be 21 to get up into the balcony. Um, but they serve like beer and stuff up there. And then downstairs is the old, like 1950s still snack bar. And st- like, it is a very, very, it's one of the coolest ones I've been to. The only other one that I could like compare it to would be the Rialto in uh, Pasadena, California, before they knocked it down. That was another cool one. So, 
to kind of wrap this up, let's talk a little bit about film real quick. I want to ask a couple real quick questions. The memorabilia from the movie, where is it at now? The Russell Crowe stuff? Yes. Yeah, the that stuff is still at Blockbuster. They've expanded a little bit. Um, people keep donating Blockbuster memorabilia. So there's a bit of a museum there now that's like, you know, old Blockbuster VHSs and all this Russell Crowe random. It's so random that they have... You know, the hood from Robin Hood and the robe from Cinderella Man. It doesn't make any sense, but they do. And you kind of have to watch either John Oliver's show or our, our documentary to find out why it's there. <laughs> but it's all still there. And adding to it in, you know, in 2020, like I said, not a lot of movies came out on DVD. So they kind of keep expanding the museum part. <laughs> it's taken over the new release walls a little bit. So... In films with you, uh, what's your favorite movie? All my favorite movies are parts of trilogies that, you know, the Back to the Futures, the Star Wars, the Indiana Joneses. So excluding trilogies, my favorite movie is That Thing You Do from 1996, directed by Tom Hanks. Oh, about the band? Yes, sir. Wow. My, mine's a creature from the Black Lagoon, so... Uh, I can't Great. I can't say anything about people. So when you talk about the trilogies, though, let's talk about those real quick. Indiana Jones, sure. Star Wars, Back to the Future. Of those, let's kind of compare notes. Fam- favorite, Indiana Jones. Temple of Doom. Uh, mine is uh, The Last Crusade. Um, I, they're pretty equal to me, but Temple of Doom, I saw it at the right age, so it stuck with me more. Do you remember the arcade game? I don't. Yeah, they had a great arcade game that was based on okay. Temple of Doom. Uh, Star Wars. Empire. I agree. Back to the Future. Back to the Future 2. It's Absolutely. always the second one for me. I, I, I just told my, my oldest daughter just told me, hey, I watched Back to the Future on Netflix. She's 15. She was like, I watched Back to the Future. It was a good movie. I go, man, the second one's even better. So Yeah, we that was the one we redid. You, the remake we did in early 2020, the pandemic quarantine remake was Back to the Future 2 because I wasn't going to put all that effort in and not do something with hoverboards, you know? Yeah. There's no hoverboards in the first one. <laughs> I see you have a hoverboard behind you. Yep. Uh, favorite documentary? Oh, that is a tough one. You know, I kind of like the ones where the people are in them, the like uh, Supersize Me or um, the Michael Moore ones, but I love a good music doc. You know, I like the ones about... Yeah bands well you could say behind the music then yeah they all kind of blend together for me and it's based on the band there was a really good one and i I forget what it's called but it was about all the the rhythm musicians the backup musicians for like motown and all that music Um, i should know the name of it (laughs) no i was gonna say muscle shoals but that's not it uh that's a great great that's a great documentary about music. i love that one i don't remember I, i don't i guess i don't know that one uh, yeah, Muscle Shoals is a is a great one. Um, in music wise, uh, the Seven Five is a great documentary about uh, New York City. Um, there's a there's a couple coming out. I, I like the true crime ones, things like that. But like I said, yours is so fun. The last blockbuster is so fun, just because it it is a just a walk down memory lane the entire way through it. Um, just everything. And like I said, I didn't even have a blockbuster when I was a kid, but. I have some very strong memories of it as I got into high school, college, military, all that kind of stuff. So well, I appreciate that. And I, you know, we do, 
these uh, these docks, and especially my earlier ones, they're not super mainstream and they're not for everybody. But every once in a while, you know, somebody will tell me, oh, I saw that movie and they're about niche enough subjects where it's it's somebody's favorite movie, you know. I don't really care about the critics and the people that hate them, but like if I can make a movie that is somebody's favorite movie and there's somebody out there that loves blockbuster video and it's their favorite thing ever. And so the fact that anybody made a movie about it, this is going to be their favorite movie. Right. And so that's, that's for me, that's a, that's good enough. You know? So let's if, run if down can, your, your other films real quick. Cause I want everyone to know what you've done. Uh, I, now if I get any of these wrong, stop me when I'm doing it. But so far on my list, sure. I have a sticker shock. Yeah, so if you're going off IMDb, there's a bunch of short films in there that are okay. They're not really available, and those that one uh, that would explain why I could not find them. Yeah, these are, these are shorts that were done, you know, for film festivals and right. stuff. So, but your big ones. Let's talk about your your three docs, and then um, let's talk about Project Eighty Eight for a second. But let's yeah, do your counts. three docs real quick. Just give us a quick overview of your three docs. Sure. My first feature was. Um, came out in 2017. It's a music doc about a band called The Refreshments. And not a lot of people know who that band is, but they had a hit single in 1996. They went on to do the theme song from King of the Hill. And um, they have had a steady, independent music career ever since. And their their story parallels just like what I was talking about with Napster and with the music industry collapsing because they did get that million-dollar record deal and then had to become independent. So we followed their story from the 90s till now, and that movie is called Here's to Life, the story of the refreshments, available on Amazon Prime. Second doc is Pick It Up, Ska in the 90s. I grew up, I was a trumpet player. I played in a bunch of ska bands. Uh, For those who don't know, most people are not that familiar with ska music, but bands like Real Big Fish, The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Sublime, No Doubt, um, Rancid, these are examples of ska bands, the specials, if you're a little bit older, madness. Um, it's a genre that is often looked down upon. Huge in the 90s. Huge in the 90s. It really popped off in the 90s. Real Big Fish, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, all over the radio. Um, we had Poi Fest when I lived in Hawaii. That. I lived in Hawaii oh, during yeah. the 90s, and we had Poi Fest, and everyone came to Poi Fest. Sublime, No Doubt, Mighty Mighty oh, Boss, yeah. everybody came to that one. So we made a movie about that era, about what happened and how it got so popular and why it burned out so quickly. And that movie has all those bands in it. We got No Doubt and, and Sublime and Real Big Fish and all that. And that's Pick It Up, Sky in the 90s, also on Amazon Prime. Okay, so two you can pick up on Amazon Prime. And then, of course, we've been talking about the last blockbuster. And they can find that at a lot of different places. Vudu, Amazon Prime. You can buy it on YouTube. You can buy it on Google Play. Mm-hmm. Um, iTunes. iTunes. Any, Apple TV. Any, uh, have you been in talks at all to do any digital, like to go over to a Netflix or an Amazon or anything like that? Because you already have that set up with the last blockbuster. Yeah, we're, we're trying. You know, it's it's a weird landscape right now. And there's not a lot of streamers buying independent content. Uh, but for now, we're just, you know, it's out where people can rent movies and and we're for sale at Blockbuster Video. You know, we're, <laughs> that's that's the cool one for me. And we're coming out on VHS here in a couple weeks. That'll be available through Lunch Meat VHS. And they're a really cool company that makes 
apparently they make modern movies on VHS. It's going to be really like yellow and blue plastic, the whole okay. nine yards. And and I saw something about a manual we, uh, rewinder too that had that was with Lunchbox. They have like a crazy like where you can rewind your VHS tapes manually. You know, I just saw that today too. They posted about that. I'm not sure if they made that or if that's a real vintage blockbuster thing that exists. I'm going to have to ask them. But yeah, I, we, we looked into for our Kickstarter campaign, giving away those, you know, they used to have rewinders that looked like race cars yeah. and things like that. Yeah. And they are so expensive now. Really? They're rare because nobody's making them. So we couldn't afford to do that. They're like a hundred bucks a pop. Oh, and when wow. I was a kid, they were like 20 bucks. Yeah, that was the thing. I never under really understood that. uh, Not to get off topic, I never really understood those rewinders. Like your your VHS rewound, and usually Mm -hmm. the way it was set up was when it uh, when it ran out of reel, it automatically rewound. But a lot of VCRs would do that, but it's twofold. One, that rewind mechanism, um, it just burns out the motors in the VCRs. Okay. So if you can put it on another machine, your VCR will last longer. Um, and then the other thing, if you're somebody like me that just like to watch movies all weekend, it takes a good five minutes to rewind a tape, but if you can pop it out and start the next one while this other machine rewinds the first one, you, you're saving time. You're watching more movies. Wow. So. Yeah. I, I never had one of those rewinders when I was a kid. So, uh, I guess my parents oh, never, never, never thought highly enough of it to get it. So guys, I think that's going to be the show for this week. Uh, go check out this movie. It is absolutely fantastic. If you ever been to a blockbuster, if you ever rent a movies, if you just have nostalgia for the 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 blockbusters that were in the past, going there on a date night, looking through the aisles, getting popcorn, candy, going back and either watching a great movie or a piece of crap movie that you want to take back automatically. The late fees, the rewind fees, it's all in there. They have heroes and villains in this. It is a great movie. You can watch it with the whole family. I don't think that there's really anything out of place to watch it with the whole family. And if you want to show your kids what it was like when you were growing up before Redbox, before streaming, this is the one to do it. That's going to be it for tonight. That's Taylor. I'm DJ. This was the last blockbuster. We'll catch you on the next one, guys. See you later.